0: And those issues include, but aren't limited to, uh, heightened racial racial tensions, um, a pandemic, and its aftermath, uh, and and an in, and an intensifying um, an intensifying of the decades-old sexual re- revolution and its myriad of components. Again, just to name a few. And while doing so, while wading through those things, we've learned that we live in a time when many have concluded that what a church believes about the culture is more important than what it believes about the Bible and the truth and the doctrine it contains. It's also a time in which the basis of unity within many churches is more political than it is doctrinal. A survey conducted by the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, their Lifeway research group, found that evangelical and mainline pastors uh, believed that maintaining unity and addressing conflict and complaints was the number one pressure they felt most during COVID. Um, Shutting down was the easy part. We thought at one point it was the difficult part, but it became the easy part Because from that point forward, debates raged. Masks, no masks. Social distancing, no social distancing. Live stream, no live stream. Zoom, no Zoom. Regather, don't regather. Virtual communion, no virtual communion. Vax, no Vax. No small groups, small groups. And that's just a few. And no matter what was decided, between those and, and other, um, within those discussions or those debates, uh, people were angry. And people left churches. And they left in some cases without any sense of civility. And they didn't leave due to doctrine. They left because what they believed about the culture was incompatible with what they perceived their church believed about the culture. But as many many have pointed out, as difficult and as sad as they have been, these last few years have been productive. And they've been productive because God has used the issues that we face, the, the issues that have created those debates to reveal idols within our hearts. And he's going to continue to do so. You see, while I'm overwhelmingly grateful that uh, overwhelmingly grateful to the Lord and to you uh, for the fact that we didn't lose one family during COVID, but actually uh, saw our number increased. And while we have not had any fights or quarrels in regards to these cultural issues that I mentioned, or any other cultural issues, um, and any other topics that may come in the future, right? um, We need to admit that while we haven't experienced arguments within our body We have had experiences of arguments within our homes, within the marketplace, um, within our neighborhoods, and that's because we all struggle. We all struggle in varying degrees, in the words of James, with being friends of the world. We struggle to varying degrees with being spiritual adulterers. We all struggle in varying degrees of being double-minded and proud, and we all struggle to varying degrees with revealing outwardly the passions that are at war within us. So we need to hear these words from James tonight. As the saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. In other words, it's a whole lot easier and better to attempt to prevent a problem from occurring or happening than it is to stop or correct it once it's happened. And What James does for us in this passage in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 4 is he provides us preventive spiritual care that we all need. Um, He identifies symptoms and then provides a diagnosis and then a prognosis an antidote and a remedy in our fight against worldliness. And I know, those of you who come from medical backgrounds, antidote and remedy are almost synonymous. I get it. Um, I was stretching for the outline, right? Because the answer uh, to the disease of worldliness is actually twofold. Um, and so I wanted to choose and, and use both of those words. Um, I wanted to break it down into two parts. So anyway, those... The worldliness and the passions that we uh, have within us and are warring within us, um, the answer to that is twofold. So, so anyway, the outline is in its normal place. You'll find that in the back of your bulletin. Children, your words are not in, in your bulletin or in our bulletin, so I want to read them quickly for you. So if you've got a pen, grab those. Uh, here they are. The, the words are passions and friends and enemies. Am I going too fast? Passions, friends, enemies, humble, proud, submit, repentance, and Jesus. Passions, friends, enemies, humble, proud, submit, repentance, or repent, and Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Please grant power to the preaching of your word, Spirit. Please grant power to the preaching of your word this evening. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. We'd ask that you would awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us, and then please refresh us, encourage us, and comfort us through the gospel. I'm weak and needy as always and unfit for this task to which you've called me, so I I need your grace. I need you to fill me with your spirit. I need you to support me, strengthen me, that I might be a pure channel of grace and that I might do something good for you this evening. I pray that I would communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and, of course, grace for the sake of Christ and his church. I ask these things. Amen. Well, I hope you're still in chapter 4 in your Bibles. Um, You'll notice James begins with a question. He doesn't really begin with a question. He's beginning our text with a question, but he's continuing in writing with a question. And the question is a means by which um, he plans to identify the symptoms of a very, very serious problem. And the question he asks is this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. And if we're going to keep it in context of our study and what we've covered uh, in the first three chapters, we could, we could put it this way or read it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you who have been brought to life through the word of truth and have had that word of truth implanted within your hearts? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you who are to be doers of the Word and not just hearers only? What causes quarrels among you and what causes fights among you who have been saved by grace alone through an active faith that is not alone? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you who have been saved not by faith and works? but by and through faith alone for works or for good works. And the words he uses in that question are surprisingly strong though he he has been straightened to the point. These words are strong. They describe battles and wars. So those within the church are verbally quarreling and fighting amongst one another and they're disrupting the fellowship And unity within the community. And from his point of view, there was was controversy and there was criticism and there was animosity and there was antagonism and even hostility. To him, these arguments weren't simple disputes that went back, incidents of verbal sparring or minor disputes that went back and forth or even differences of opinion. They were expressions of bitter rivalries and heartbreaking conflicts that were recurring over and over and over again. And his question is really simple. What's the cause? What's going on? Why is this happening? In other words, the, the quarrels and the fights that were going on were symptoms of a bigger issue. There was something going on on the inside. The quarreling and fighting were visible, but there was something lurking in the background. There was something motivating their behavior and stirring up the strife that they were experiencing. And of course the question is rhetorical, as all of his questions have been to this point, because he knew exactly what the cause was. And again, he's not going to hold back in giving them the answer that he wants to give them. Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? His diagnosis was that the external physical battles going on in their midst corporately were due to internal, sp- uh, internal battles going on within them spiritually. Spiritually. Their sinful pleasures and those self-indulgent desires were waging spiritual war within uh, within them inwardly, and that was resulting in the quarrels and arguments between them outwardly. So he said you're you're envying others, you're jealous of others, you, you covet what others have, you basically want what you want when you want it. No matter what the cost, and no matter who has it, and whoever, he says, whoever stands in your way is simply an obstacle to you and to your self-gratification and your immediate gratification. And so to remove those who are in your way, you use the tongue that you, you have failed to or worse, you've refused to bridle. And you use your tongue as poison, they're weapons to eliminate the others. And if that doesn't work, right? You, be, you get into the fights and the quarrels, they break out and they're verbal, but left unchecked. Particularly at that time, they would have broken out into to physical fights. And beloved, this happens. Every, it happens with now. We see it all around us. It happens between individuals. It happens between groups. It happens between churches. It happens between organizations. It happens between political parties. It happens between nations. And it all arises out of this discontent and envious, this envy and, and covetousness, among many other things, desires that are waging war within us. But he's not done. Because the sinful desires and those pleasures weren't only wreaking havoc between them as members of the congregation, it was also wreaking havoc between them and their relationship with God. In the words of one commentator, the fact of the matter is that we cannot cast off restraint, run riot, please ourselves, and be completely hedonistic without a price having to be paid. The human price, he says, is the destruction of relationships. The spiritual price is a breach with God. Notice what James says, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Their sinful pleasures and those self-indulgent um, desires within them, that envy, that covetousness, uh, that jealousy, that raging war was... Disturbing their fellowship with one another, but it was also hindering their prayers. In other words, it was, it was disturbing their communion with God. Due to their passions within them, what should have been a solution, praying for godly wisdom in the midst of those situations wasn't an option. And even if it was an option, they weren't asking rightly. They were asking with the wrong motives, and it was causing those prayers to be unfruitful. They had selfish motives. They were seeking to satisfy their own sinful passions and selfish desires, and, as, and, they, and they were praying to God as if He was some genie that had given them three wishes in which He would answer anything that they asked. didn't say, and notice James, James didn't say, the Father doesn't hear them. He said they don't receive what they ask for. The problem was not God's hearing, it was their asking. And while the context, of course, points to the prayers for uh, for godly wisdom, as we've seen since chapter one, it can be applied across the board um, regarding prayer generally. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter nine when we were back there several months ago, He said, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And the one who seeks, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? God desires to answer. So James's point is clear in the words of Alec Motier. He says, public problems or a disruption of fellowship have private causes, self-pleasing hearts, and if the highest, which he defines as the good life, is to be achieved in the harvest of righteousness, there is need for a deep, penetrative work of transformation to be wrought upon the individual heart. In other words, if things are going to be cleaned up physically right, and externally, something has to be done spiritually and inter- internally and spiritually. Well, in verses four and five, he moves from diagnosis to prognosis. He moves from identifying the problem um, by its signs and symptoms that were present. To explaining the likely course of the disease or the problem, the course it will follow if it's left untreated. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us. Those who he has been calling, tenderly calling, right? For the last three chapters, tenderly calling brothers and sisters, he's now calling adulterous, spiritually adulterous. And because most of his readership are Jewish, it's not lost on them. They understand exactly what he's saying. Throughout the Old Testament, God is described as the husband of Israel. And Israel is described as his wife, and of course this pointed forward to Jesus being the bridegroom in the church of which we were obeyed, his law, and any time Israel fell or disobeyed his law, they were described as being spiritually unfaithful or spiritually, adult, uh, spiritually adulterers, spiritual adulterers. And Jesus followed suit. Again, from our study of Luke, we read over and over again how he called those who were embracing worldliness as an adulterous generation. It's common language throughout Scripture. And so James says that throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself to be a jealous God. And it's not, he's not jealous like you or I are jealous because our jealousy arrives, arises from sin and a, a lack of trust and insecurities within ourselves. And God's jealousy is not that way. His jealousy is holy and untainted. And his jealousy describes an absolute, and unwavering, unreserved loyalty. It's an absolute, unwavering, and unreserved commitment that he expects of those upon whom he has set his love. He expects it of those that he is saved by his Spirit and the Word that he has implanted within them. So when we give in to our passions, when we give in to our desires, James says we're cheating on God. We're being unfaithful to Him. We're forsaking the most sacred of bonds, having been united to the Lord Jesus. We're violating our union and communion with Him when we do. We're forgetting and straying from and trampling upon our first love, to use John's words from Revelation 2. But he doesn't stop there, though we wish he would. He says when we follow our passions and when we seek to fulfill our own selfish desires, we're actually being friends of the world and enemies of God. You see, friendships then were different than friendships now. Um, Friendships now are built upon common interests and hobbies and likes or dislikes, and and sometimes when we talk about friends, it's simply they've pushed a little thumbs up button uh, in Facebook. But friends in James's day, in the words of Ken Riddlebarger, they were ideologically connected and shared a deep and abiding unity. Right? They were bound to one another. So here's, here's what's significant about that. James says that, well, enmity that he says that we are, if we're friends of the world, we're at enmity with God. Enmity involves hatred. And again, Alex Motier says, "Overtones that enmity has overtones of undoing treaties and returning to a former state of affairs." So James is saying that those who profess the Lord Jesus Christ, those who profess to trust in Christ, those who profess uh, to have uh, to believe in Christ as the forgiver of sins. For those who profess to have been reconciled to God through the work of Christ and to be at peace with God through the work of Christ, who, by the way, died uh, for them or us while we were still, when when they consistently hear the word but don't do it. When they consistently fail to control their tongues or our tongues, consistently play favorites, consistently struggle with jealousy and selfish ambition, consistently, consistently seek to satisfy those sinful passions and self-serving desires and, and fight and quarrel, we're deceiving ourselves if we don't think we call our relationship with God into question and cast doubt on our profession of faith. That's what he's saying. And that's because it's impossible to be a friend of the world and a friend of God simultaneously. You're either a friend of God and an enemy of the world or a friend of the world and an enemy of God. The Spirit cannot live harmoniously with self-gratifying passions and self-seeking desires. James says it just, th- those desires destroy the relationship, again, both horizontally and vertically. When we're saved, the peace of God, the, the peace that God declares is never un- undeclared. The new relationship that he brings about never reverts to the former relationship. Therefore the only possibility when worldliness is constant in the life of a person is that there never was peace with God. There never was a new relationship because the old relationship had never been made new. We go back a couple of chapters and what did we learn? That their faith was false. Or their faith is false. And the sobering fact is that spiritual adulterers and spiritual enemies of God will be judged and found wanting. Spiritual adulterers, spiritual enemies of God will experience the curse and wrath of God. Judgment is inevitable. And so he's telling them and he's telling us to strive, to continue, to battle the passions and the desires that are within us and to seek to put them to death. He's telling them and us to not commit spiritual adultery. He's telling us and them to not turn our backs on God, but turn our backs on the world and to turn to Christ in faith. Because Christ, and only true friend of sinners, and not doing so will have its consequences. I'd take a breath after all that, right? But James just kept writing. You know, those that think that um, James is absent of the gospel, we're completely wrong. Um, James doesn't just move on and leave them there and leave us there in this place of despair, right? Because how did I begin? We all struggle at some level with all of those things. So he gives us an antidote and a remedy. James points... Out both, the sufficiency of God and the responsibility of man when it comes to dealing with these passions and desires and the worldliness that we fight against. And so I've labeled the sufficiency of God as the antidote and the responsibility of men as the remedy. Let's look at the antidote first. Look at verse 6. It's a great statement that we need to hear, right? But he, God, gives more grace. but he, God, gives more grace. While Christ has defeated our sin and we've been set free from the power of sin and the bondage that we once were to it, we've not been delivered from the presence of sin. We've said that on more than one occasion in our studies so far, that sin is still present within us. And if we're going to strive to to defeat the sinful passions, if we're going to overcome those self-seeking desires within us, we've got to look outside of ourselves for the answer. And this is the opposite of worldly wisdom, right? We've been talking about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says that the problems all are coming from outside of us and we need to look within to answer. James says, no. The problems are within us and we need help from outside because we can't do it ourselves. Fortunately for us, God is not only jealous, He's gracious. In the words of Douglas Moo, our God is a consuming fire, and His demand for our exclusive allegiance may seem terrifying. But our God is also merciful, gracious, all-loving, and willingly supplies all that we need to meet His all-encompassing demands. So James says, no matter how many passions and desires are waging war within us, within you, within me, God gives more grace. No matter how strong those passions and desires might be within you, might be within me, God gives more grace. Every time we fail, And give in to those passions and desires. God gives more grace. I love this paragraph from Alex Motier. God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we've put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to Him, He is never beaten. We may play false to the grace of election. We may contradict the grace of reconciliation. We may overlook the grace of indwelling, but He gives more grace. Even if we turn to Him and say, what I have received so far is much less than enough, He would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. God gives us, by His grace, He gives us everything He demands in Christ. What He calls us to, He equips us for. And he's always ready and willing to give us more and more of it. It never runs out. We cannot out-sin grace. It's always in abundant supply. Overflowing. We read in our assurance of pardon, right? It's been lavish, heinous upon us. Think of the most heinous of sins, and he has more grace. Think of the sin that you cannot mortify and that you continue to struggle with. He has more grace. Brothers and sisters, the the problem is not in our inability to mortify our sin. Christ has defeated sin. Satan has been bound. Bound at the cross of Christ. So the issue is not our... Ability, one of two things, one of two problems exists. Either we don't want to, or we're too proud to admit we can't and we need help. Look at the rest of verse 6. He says, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James couldn't be more clear. God gives grace to those who need it, who admit they need it. So if we know we need grace, if we're going to mortify our sin and we want to mortify our sin, there is ample grace for the battle. He has more than enough grace to defeat whatever sin it is that we're dealing with. It may not happen immediately. It may take time. It may take years. His grace never runs out. But his his abundant grace doesn't nullify our responsibility. Okay? His grace is for us to simply receive, but his commands are also for us to obey. He gives grace to the humble. We therefore must humble ourselves. And he tells us what that looks like in verses 7 to 10. If you like lists, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to give you, I don't know that I've ever given you a list of things to go and do. I think I can say absolutely. I've never done that until tonight. So if you like lists, you're going to love this. But it's not coming from me, it's coming from James. Um, first, he says, Look, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is active, it's not passive, it's an active commitment to obey that which the Lord has commanded. It's an active command to obey Him in response to Christ's rule as Lord. We're in a battle with the flesh and the world and with Satan, and so. Submitting is is a matter of placing ourselves under Christ's authority and fighting under Christ's banner as king. We're, you know, he is leading us and we're submitting to him. Secondly, he says, resist the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and then resist the devil. Satan is an enemy who is to be opposed. Yes, he's been bound, but he is still at work powerful though he may be he is he's limited he has ultimately been defeated and we have been given what we need to overcome that power and our battle is not offensively minded our battle is defensively oriented and so having having Confessed, professed Christ. We've enlisted, so to speak, and we're to, to head to the front lines and to, we're to engage when he attacks. And the promise is that no matter how strong or how constant his attack may be, James says if we resist, resist, he will flee. It's a promise. Remember from our study of Luke, right? We're to pray that we not be led into temptation. We're to flee from our temptations. James says we are to resist the devil, right? We're to resist the devil through our knowledge of the truth of Scripture. And so often we get these two things in reverse, right? We're going we're to stand firm and resist the temptation. And we're going to flee from Satan, when it's actually the other way around. Temptation is not to be entertained, and Satan is not to be feared. Remove what tempts you, or remove yourself from what tempts you, and then stand firm on the truth of God's Word and the promises that He has made, and resist the enemy's lies. Thirdly, he says this, draw near to God. We're to intentionally cultivate our relationship with God. It's something that we set our minds to. The verb he uses is throughout the Old Testament to, and used to describe God's people approaching Him in worship. So we draw near to Him when we approach Him in worship, we draw near to Him when we approach Him in prayer. Both. Private and public, we draw near to him when we read his word and when we hear his word taught and read. I mean, sorry, uh, taught and preached. We draw near to him when we approach the table that he has set before us, the feast that he has prepared before us. And we draw near when we gather in fellowship with one another. And when we draw near to God, he has promised to draw near to us. Again, a matter of fact, promise. And so we need to ask ourselves with that promise, why why would our gathering for corporate worship be any less than the number one priority we have each and every week? He's promised to meet with us. Fourth, he says we're to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. We're to be wretched and mourn and weep. We're to let our laughter be turned into mourning and our joy to gloom. In other words, we're to grieve over the fact that we're sinners. We're to mourn the sin that is within us and we're to repent of it. We're to admit that we're spiritually bankrupt. In the words of Revelation 3, in the words of John in Revelation 3, we're poor, blind, and naked when it comes to our spiritual state. It doesn't get any more graphic than that. We're to, we, we're to repent of our external sinful behaviors, those things that we do, those things that we don't do, or leave those things that we've done and that we leave undone. We're to repent of our internal um, sinful attitudes and desires and passions that, we're, uh, that are within us. And we do this, right, when we draw near to Him in worship, When we come into his presence, every week we come into his presence, and having come into his presence and sung his praises, we're confronted with our sinfulness and his holiness, and what do we do? We confess our sins. And of course, we hear the assurance of pardon, but it also, it doesn't just happen in worship, it becomes, repentance becomes a way of life it becomes something that we do each and every day as we grow in our understanding in our in our understanding of the depth of our sin and our need for forgiveness we it becomes a way of life when we acknowledge that we we do not make we, we do not Purify our hearts. We do not cleanse our hands. Our hearts and hands, our hearts are purified and our hands are cleansed by the blood of Christ alone. And notice what he says as we humble ourselves and stop trying to exalt ourselves, he exalts us. That's exactly what his brother Jesus was saying in Luke 18. Now this is weighty stuff. We've all felt it. We read this letter in The, the Law Works. Does it not? Did it not? Right, it brought us low. because we all struggle in varying degrees with these things. We, we struggle being friends with the world. We struggle with our spiritual adultery. We, stu- we struggle with our double-mindedness. We struggle with the, the being proud. We struggle with those passions and desires at war within us. We do. And again, while God equips us to mortify our sin, it is a Lifelong battle. Once one is mortified, another rears its ugly head. And sometimes it does feel like that we're taking two steps forward and three steps back. Acknowledged. And so what do we do? We pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Do we not? Come, Lord Jesus, and deliver us from the presence of sin because we're tired. But the Lord is being kind to us through James. Because the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. And we feel the weight and we feel that burden, but having diagnosed our sin and having diagnosed our friendship with the world and having warned us of the danger of the prognosis, if, if, we, aren't to, if we don't do something about it, he gives us good news. Again, he knew it was only when we understand the depth of our depravity and the severity of our consequences that we would understand the extreme nature of grace. Our knowledge of God's wrath and judgment is proportionate to our knowledge and understanding of grace. James says, God gives abundant grace to sinners. God forgives those who humble themselves and turn from their sin and turn to faith in Christ. He gives grace to those who approach Him, His grace to those... God, God gives grace to those who turn to faith in Christ who not only took on the curse of the law upon himself but fulfilled the law on our behalf and in our place he's imputed us with the life or with Christ's righteousness he's sealed us and filled us with his spirit grace upon grace he gives us more grace so brothers and sisters beloved of god May we humble ourselves, draw near to God, and receive his abundant overflow of grace that he desires to give to us in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love. And lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached. And may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name and for his sake I pray. Amen.